also great to have you online uh, worshiping with us today. Hey, next week is going to be a really big week, and I just, we're so excited about it. Our office is a buzz about it because next weekend is Welcome Weekend. And so, yeah, we're fired up uh, about it. Uh, what that means is that we'll be back into three services, uh, 9 o'clock, 10, 15, 11, 30. All of our groups are invited back on campus. Our student ministry, kids ministry relaunches. So we are just thrilled. We've been waiting on this since March, all right, uh, to get back to this day. And so just a couple of things. Uh, just be in prayer for this coming Sunday. We're going to have food trucks. We're going to have outside games. We're going to have a lot of fun things to do. So you want to be sure and be here for that. It's a great day to bring somebody with you, to introduce them to the church. It's a great day to do that. So we encourage you to be thinking about who you can invite and bring. And if you normally uh, attend the nine o'clock, then we encourage you to go to the nine o'clock. If you would normally pre-COVID go to 1015, we encourage you to go to 1015. If you normally went to 1130, then we encourage you to go to 1130. If we do that, then that will allow plenty of seats for everybody along the way as we still have some restricted seating. So we encourage you to come. And man, if you're worshiping online and you're waiting for that perfect time to come back next weekend would be a great Great time uh, to re-enter and worship together. We're going to launch a new series. I'll talk more about that uh, later on. But it's going to be a great day. All right. We are in our series called Changed, and we're wrapping that up today. So once you get your Bible out, open it up to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 5. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. You know, as a pastor for now several years, many years, uh, I get a chance to see people uh, in good situations, happy situations, sometimes very sad situations. Sometimes I get to see people really at their best, and, and sometimes I see them at their worst. I, I get a front row seat to, to your lives and how you walk with Jesus. And many times I, I will talk to Christians. These are people, not, not necessarily new believers, many times seasoned believers that walk with Jesus for some time. And they will, they will tell me that they're really struggling spiritually. Many times they will say things like, well, Craig, I just really feel kind of burned out spiritually or, or, or worn out or, or you know, I'm, I'm struggling in, in, inside. I, I don't really have a, a desire to read the Bible. I don't really have a desire to pray. I struggle to even go to church. I, I'm just kind of uh, stalled out spiritually, not, uh, not moving forward, not uh, really walking away, just spinning my wheels. They'll say, I feel dry spiritually. I, I don't really have, I just don't feel alive like I used to, like that passion, that hunger, that calling, that excitement is not there like it used to be. Uh, in fact, if, even if they pressed in a little bit closer and became a little more honest, they may even say, you know, I'm struggling with some secret area of sin in my life, or I just, I've got some disappointments that I can't quite get over. I've got some doubts that I'm struggling with. All of us go through seasons like this. All of us deal with highs and lows in our Christian walk. And some of you may be in that right now. Truth is, man, this whole COVID crisis has taken a toll on you and you're struggling just to try to keep your head above water financially and, and with school and kids in and out and online and on campus and, and just all the, the stress and the strain of what's happening in our country right now, and, and you're really struggling. 
So what do you do when you get in that situation? When you're stalled out, how do you get out of it? How do you, how do you work your way out? What are, what are some things you need to do to move you forward again? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today, all right? So if that's you, then you're in the right spot because we're going to talk about how Jesus changes us. And I'm going to show you a person that you're going to be very familiar with this guy, but maybe not as familiar with this story. I'm sure you probably heard it. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably heard it. Uh, but the, the, the importance of this story as a changed moment may have escaped you. But he's gonna, you're going to see how Jesus changed a man that was very stalled out spiritually and really moved him to being very sold out uh, for Christ. All right. So Luke chapter 5 is, is where we are uh, this morning. So let's just dive into the story here. Luke chapter 5. Beginning verse 1, this is the word of God. As a crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret, and he saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds, uh, from the boat. Now stop right there for just a minute. This event happens about midway through Jesus's three, three and a half, three plus uh, year of ministry. Okay, about midway in this, uh, in his ministry. And this is really at the height, I believe, of Jesus's popularity. There, uh, Jesus is everywhere, and, and the crowds are following him everywhere. If you look back in Luke chapter 4, you, you start to see, you can just kind of read some of those verses. Jesus is healing a lot. He's engaging the crowd a lot. He casts out a demon in the synagogue, and then he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and, and then the whole town comes out, and all the surrounding towns come out, and he's up all night healing and teaching, and casting out demons, and, and just the whole town is recognizing the power of Jesus. And even when he has to walk away from the crowds and he's teaching, the crowds are always with him. So it's like the paparazzi, right? They're always on Jesus. They're always looking for him. They're always wanting to know where he's going to be. And they're always needing him. And so that's what happens here. When you get to Luke 5, Jesus is uh, surrounded by these crowds. And he's going in the morning down to the lake. This Lake Gennesaret is the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. Same body of water, just different name. And he's going there in the morning to get some fish, all right? Everyone, uh, the fishermen would fish. And then in the morning, everybody would go down to the shoreline. And they would buy their fish for the day. And every, they always ate fresh, all right? If you and I go to get fish, right, we go down here to Market Street or something, we're going to buy it in a Ziploc bag. It's already going to be frozen. We put it in our refrigerator. We eat it sometime later on that week. Everything was fresh back then, right? No refrigerators, no Ziploc bags. You just go pick out the fish they caught that night, and they ate it up uh, for breakfast that morning. All right, so everyone is down there. Jesus shows up. The crowds recognize who he is. They're pressing around him. They want to know uh, what he's going to do and what he's going to say. And they literally are backing him up to the water. All right, he, they're just pressing in on him. And so in order to kind of get some space, I mean, they're definitely invading the personal space bubble at that point. Uh, they, he, he looks and he sees his boat, all right? And so he climbs in the boat, happens to be a boat owned by Simon, which is also called Peter, 
right? And so he asked Peter to push out from the shoreline so that he can sit down on the brow of the boat and just teach uh, the people. And so that's exactly uh, what's happening. I believe that Peter probably said, all right. And so we, Peter probably wades out the boat, holding onto the boat so it doesn't drift off. And he's probably standing there holding on to the edge of the boat, probably chest high in water while Jesus is sitting teaching the crowd. Now, wouldn't you love to have heard what Jesus taught? I mean, I, my mind works in weird places like that. I'm like, well, what, what did he teach on? You know, I mean, we get so many great sermons of Jesus, but we aren't told in this passage what he actually taught. But what if, okay, just track with me for a minute. What if Jesus taught about how God meets your needs? You know, we had taught about that before. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said these words, So do not worry, saying, What should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. What if Jesus was teaching about how God's faithful to provide your needs, how God can take care of you, that you don't need to worry, that your Father knows what you need. And here's Peter holding onto the boat, standing in the water, looking up, listening to every word. And then after the sermon, Jesus turns to Peter, looks down to Peter, and he gives him this really unusual command. He, uh, well, just look at it. Look at verse 4. It says, Then, uh, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now, this is a really interesting uh, request of Jesus to go out and, and drop down your nets. The reason why is because everybody knows that you fish at night. You fish at night. It's still that way today. In fact, if you go to the Sea of Galilee, every time we take a tour in Israel, we always go to this restaurant that's right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to eat fish, and they serve it where the fish is actually still looking at you. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, so it's fresh, and they just caught it to tilapia right out of the, of the, of the lake. Uh, but everybody knows that, that you fish at night. Why do you fish at night? Because the, the Sea of Galilee, it sounds big, the sea, it's actually just a lake, about seven miles across, about 13 miles long, about 141 feet at its deepest point, which is really actually a, a very, very deep lake, much deeper than Lake Grapevine and so on, over twice as, as deep. And so what would happen is the fish would come up to the surface at night when it's cool, and they would feed on the, on the top, and that's why they would throw out their nets, and they would catch them off the surface of the water. But when the sun comes out and it starts to get warm, they all go down to the deepest part. They all go down where it's dark, where it's cold, and they hang out down there during the day, and then at night they come back up and they feed at night. That's why you fish at night. Everybody knows that. And so when Jesus asked him to go throw out his net at the deepest part in the day, that doesn't make any sense. Now, Peter's response is pretty nice, but I'm sure if it were you or me, we'd probably say, look, Jesus, uh, you stick to preaching, all right? And I stick to fishing, all right? This is what I do. This is what, I'm a professional at this. This is what my dad did. This is what my granddad did. did. We know how to fish. You, everybody knows you don't fish during the day. But I love his response. He said, Master, 
boss, basically. Listen, boss, we, we worked hard all night. We didn't catch a thing. But look at what he says. But he says, uh, if you say so, verse 5, if you say so, I'll cast in it. If you say so, I'll do it. You know, there are going to be times in your life when you're going to feel God leading you to do something that's out of your comfort zone. Things that don't really make sense to you. Well, you can't be calling me into ministry because I'm an accountant, right? And, and, and you call preacher boys to ministry, not accountants. Or you, you can't be asking me to go on that mission trip because I always take my vacation on this week and I don't use that on a mission trip. Or I, Why would you want me to lead that class? Because I, I certainly am not very qualified. You need to get somebody that understands the Bible a lot better than I do. Or I couldn't possibly share my gospel with a neighbor because I, I, don't, I really wouldn't know what to say. And if I get into it, what if they ask me a question that I don't know? And, and so many times, instead of saying, yes, Lord, if you say so, I'll do it. We come up with lots of excuses. Not me, not now, not, not this situation, maybe later, maybe another time. How do you respond when Jesus asks you to do something? Jesus is asking Peter to do something that's way out of his comfort zone. And by the way, I think more than out of his comfort zone, this could be embarrassing for him, right? He's there with all the other fishermen. They're all out there too. And for him to go out during the day and throw a net over would look absolutely ridiculous. What's he doing out there? You know, what's he, what, I mean, come on, Peter. I mean, this would, this would make him look very foolish in the eyes of everyone. But I love the heart of Peter. You got to love Peter, right? He, I mean, he's full bore, whether, whether it's right or wrong. I mean, he's in it. And he says, look, boss, I, we worked all night. Haven't seen a thing. But if you say so, I'll do it. If you say so, I'll look foolish. If you say so, I'll, I'll put my reputation on the line. If you say so, I'll do it. So, look at what happens. Look at verse 6. It says, and when they did this, they caught a great number of fish. And their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. I mean, that's a lot of fish, right? Verse 8, and when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away, Lord, from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish that had, had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. So, all of a sudden, he says, all right, I'll do it. He goes out, right? He throws his net over, not expecting anything, right? Just expecting maybe a few laughs is probably about all he's expecting. And all of a sudden, the water starts to churn. All of a sudden, the boat takes a hard tilt to the side. And, and 
believe it, I mean, just as many fish as he could pie. He'd never seen a catch like this before. So big that he was like tilting the boat over, so he's calling for help. The other guys are coming over. Of course, everyone on the beach now is watching what's happening. They're pointing, they're, they're shouting. They're like, hey, come here, look at this. They've never seen anything like it. Both boats are just now filled with fish flopping and, and moving all over the place and water everywhere. It's kind of a chaotic moment. And there are people laughing and cheering and like, oh my goodness, what's happening? How could this possibly be? And there's this, all this celebration going on. And in the middle of this celebration, Peter is not celebrating. Peter, who's standing probably thigh deep in fish, just falls down before Jesus. and says, Jesus, just go away. Just, just go away. Because I am a very sinful man. And this is where the, the, the defining moment happens. I believe that Jesus, now the Bible doesn't tell us this. This is in my mind's eye, but I believe Jesus put his hand on Peter's head or put him on his shoulder. He said, look up here. From now on, Peter, you're going to fish for people. Probably with a big smile on his face. Like you think this was a good catch. You ain't seen nothing yet. Now what's going on here? Why the, why the brokenness? Why the sorrow? But why, many times, I, I tell you what, as I've studied the Bible over the years, uh, this has caused me to scratch my head more than once. And a lot, of, a lot of Bible scholars wonder, what is going on with this whole story? And, and why is it happening this way? And really, you need to understand the whole story of Peter to really understand what's happening in this moment. So let me just pause the story and kind of rewind the tape to the back because this is not the first time Peter met Jesus. Some people, I, I remember recently this, this uh, movie called The Chosen has been come out. Some of y'all have seen The Chosen uh, on, on your phone or online. And it's, it, it depicts, you know, who Jesus is and so on. And, and they almost make it as if this event is the first time Peter met Jesus. This is not the first time Peter met Jesus. Peter met him over 18 months ago, maybe more, maybe more like, you know, 20 months prior, okay? So the, Peter met Jesus uh, early on, and there are actually three calls that Jesus gives to Peter. Let me give them to you real quick. The first call happens in John chapter 1, verse 42. John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist is preaching just on the northern shore of the Dead Sea, way down in the south. Right? Just on the northern lip of the Dead Sea, uh, he's preaching, and crowds are following John the Baptist, this guy that wore uh, camel skin, you know, and ate locusts and cried out, kind of had this wild look about him, and he was preaching in the wilderness, and all these people were gathered. Well, guess who was in that crowd? Peter had gone down there to, to follow and, uh, this wild prophet like John the Baptist. His brother Andrew was down there. James, I believe, and John were down there too. They had all kind of taken a vacation from the north. They were following this great prophet to see what he would say, and one day John the Baptist looks up, and he points out Jesus in the crowd, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes takes away the sin of the world. And so Andrew, Peter's brother, and John, the son of Zebedee, who's actually in this story as well, uh, they peel off and they follow after Jesus. And Jesus notices that they're behind him, and he turns around and he says, uh, what are you looking for? And they said, well, um, uh, where are you staying? And he says, well, come and see. And so Jesus spends all afternoon with these two guys. And they leave his presence so convinced that he's the Christ. The first thing Andrew does is he goes and finds Peter. And he goes, Peter, you got to, you got to go meet this guy. We found the Messiah. And so 
he literally drags Peter to Jesus like, hi, how are you? I've heard you're the Messiah kind of, kind of encounter. And this is exactly what happens. In John 1.42, it says, you are Simon. This is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So the very first time he meets Peter, kind of a strange introduction, he like gives him a nickname, gives him a new name. He goes, you're going to be called Peter. Now from that moment, Peter and Andrew, James and John begin to kind of follow Jesus around. They're, they're fishing, they're doing their job up in the Sea of Galilee. They've got a fishing business, they're doing that. But on their off times, they would go hang out with Jesus. And they're really exploring who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing. They're checking him out. They're listening to him. They're seeing him. They're intrigued by him. They're amazed by him. Uh, they they may, uh, may be already coming to a sense of realization that he is the Messiah. But that's the first call in John 1.42. The second call comes about 18 months later. So they're doing this for about a year and a half. Fish and follow. Fish and follow. They're, they're doing their business, and then they're going to hanging out with this rabbi from Nazareth. They're doing this for about 18 months. And then the second call comes, and that happens in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. So write that down. Matthew 4, 18 and 19. That's the second call. And the second call, Jesus is walking by the shoreline, just like he is in this passage we're studying today. He's walking by. He sees them mending their nets after all day of working, just like he did now. And this is what Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And it says immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Now this was a greater commitment. Up to this point, they've just been kind of hanging out with Jesus. They've been watching Jesus. They've been exploring who he is. They've been intrigued by him. They've been amazed by him. But now Jesus comes to them and he says, it's time guys for a commitment. All right, it's time for a commitment. I want you to follow me. I want you to be my guys. I want you to follow me as, as a, a student would follow a rabbi or a teacher. And it says that they left their nets and they began to be the Jesus guys. They began to live in community. They began to get involved in ministry. They began to follow Jesus and, and actually get, get their hands dirty in ministry. Crowd control and doing whatever he needed done. And really learning from Jesus. That began in Matthew 4.18. So this has gone on now for a period of time, and now we get to Luke chapter 5, which is what we call the third call of Peter, and Peter's back to fishing again. He's back to fishing again, and this, many people confuse this call with the second call, the follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, because this is very similar. Back in Luke chapter 5, he says, from now on, you will be fishing for men. Now from on, you'll be fishing for people. Actually, he reinstates, he restates the call to Peter. Now, what's going on here? These are two different environments, two different stories. Matthew 4 and Luke 5 are two different stories. The difference, obviously, the, the statement is the same, you're going to fish for people, but the circumstances are very different. In, in this story, you have a miraculous catch, right? You didn't have before in Matthew 4. In this story, you have the confession of Peter. You have his brokenness. And then you have this restatement of Jesus. You're going to catch people, Peter. Don't sell yourself short. So what, what's going on here? So let me give you my view of what's going on here. I believe that Peter 
had been examining Jesus for about 18 months, 20 months. I believe that, that he had left his net to follow Jesus like he did in Matthew 4. I believe he'd been doing that. Uh, he'd been getting involved in ministry. He was more and more engaged. But I believe Peter was struggling with being sold out. And it would make sense because Peter was different than all the other disciples. For one, Peter was older. Most scholars believe that Peter was in his early 20s where most of the other disciples were in their teens. Secondly, Peter was married, right? He's a married man. Nobody else was married. And we know that he had a mother-in-law that was also living in his house. Oh, yeah, he had a house. He had a business. There's no mention of Peter's father. So I don't know, maybe his father wasn't in the picture. Maybe his father was dead. But almost as if to see that Peter was in charge of the family business. He was in charge of taking care of his, not only his wife, but his, but his mother-in-law. And every, his whole household was depending on him to make the money and to provide. And so how, we, how am I going to go follow this rabbi when I have these obligations? And so I think there was this real struggle inside of Peter. Like, I want to be sold out, Jesus, but how, do I, how am I going to make it financially? How am I going to really do what you're asking me to do? How is that going to happen? And I think Jesus knew it. And so when he, he, maybe Jesus was preaching on, you can trust God to meet your needs. Peter's listening, going, okay, is that true? He said, I'll tell you what, why don't you put it out for a catch? And when that boat filled up, the biggest catch of his life, two things happened. Number one, he was convicted of his own sin, of really doubting God, of not being sold out, of being half-hearted. He was convicted by that, but he was also convinced that God could provide for him no matter what. That God could provide for him better than he could. He caught nothing. Jesus filled up two boats. And he was, at that moment, realized what it meant to be fully committed to Jesus. Peter, in this event, does one thing that God wants you and I to do. And that is one word. Surrender. Surrender. What moves you from being stalled out to sold out is surrender. What is Surrender. Well, let me, let me give you a little definition. Surrender means to submit to Jesus' ownership and leadership in your life. Surrender means, to, says God, I, I don't own uh, my life. I don't, uh, all that I have is yours, Lord. I want to say yes to you. I want to go where you want to go. I want to I trust you completely. I want to surrender all that I have, all that I own, all that I want to be, every relationship that I have. God, all that I have is yours. And I want to follow you and I want to do only what you want. Total surrender. This is what Jesus wants from you and from me. The Apostle Paul talked about this multiple times. Paul was an example of surrender over and over and over in the Scriptures. But I want to give you one key verse in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, talking about surrender, said this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Did you get that? He said, listen, my life is so, I've died to my old way of life. I died to my goals. I died to my desires of this world. I died to all that. Now Christ lives in me and I live a life of faith and trusting him because he loved me and he gave himself for me. And the least I can do is give myself to him. If he gave himself to me, the least I can do is give all that I have to him. Later on in Galatians 6, he would say this, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Basically, the world's got nothing for me. This isn't a guy that's suicidal. This is a guy that's saying, listen, I am dead to, to this world. This world's got nothing to offer me. Lord Jesus, I just want you to be the boss, the leader, the Lord of my life. Some Christians will call this lordship. You've heard the term lordship. That just simply means I surrender to Jesus being Lord, the boss, and the leader of my life completely. Bill was a, a businessman, was actually making a, a good living in Hollywood, California. He had started off really with nothing uh, and really made it. He, was, he was, had finally had a nice house, finally had a nice car. He had a growing business. That's all he ever wanted. But he had given his life to Christ, and God was gnawing at him, working on him, saying, hey, I've got more for you. I've got more for you, but you need to surrender to me. Finally, one night, he was talking with his wife about this need to fully surrender all that they have to Jesus. And he said, I'm a businessman, so I did what a businessman does. He said, I pulled out a, 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 a notepad, and he, I said, I began to write out all the things that we own. Here's our bank account, God. Here's our savings account. Here's our retirement. Here's my car. Here's my house. Here's my business. Here's my inventory. Here are my relationships. He began to write out everything that they owned. He later would call this his contract with God. And at the end of it, he said, I surrender everything I have to you, Jesus. He said that night at their kitchen table, they took their hands and they prayed. And they said, Lord, from this point forward, all that we have is yours. We sign it all over to you. And I simply want to do what you want me to do. I don't want to waste my life doing anything else. You see, that's really what God wants from you. And that's what God wants from me. And that's what really changed Peter's life. I remember several years ago when Liz and I were working in Oklahoma City and we were in, it was an inner city ministry. It was a difficult ministry and it was a hard ministry. And we were trying to figure out how to, how to make this work. And we were really discouraged and I remember we came up to a concert in Dallas and we were sitting and, and, and the concert was ministering to our hearts. And after the concert was over, they said, if you want to come down and, and just for prayer, then we'd love to pray for you. And man, I grabbed her hand and we, we hit the aisle. We went down and I'll never forget this one man just putting his hands on us. And he said, um, he just prayed over us. God, renew their strength, renew their passion. Lord, help them to surrender all that they are to you. It was a defining moment. Why is surrender so important to God? Why is it so important to us in the Christian life? Let me give you a couple of reasons. Write this first one down. Uh, surrender is important because surrendering in the small things actually leads you to surrendering to big things. 
When you surrender in small things in your life, then you are more likely to surrender to big things in your life. That's what happened with Peter. First off, Peter surrendered his boat. Hey, can I get in your boat? Yeah, I guess you can use my boat. And then later on, he surrendered his will. I want you to surrender your will to mine and throw the net over. And then after he surrendered his will, then after that, he said, now I want you to surrender all that you are. And what I found is that when we're saying yes to God in little things in our lives, then it's easy to say yes to God in the bigger things of our lives. And that's how God grows our faith. And that's how he moves us forward in our walk with God. But listen, the same principle is true on the opposite end. If I, if I say no to God in little things, then it's easy for me to say no to God in bigger things. If, I, if God prompts me to, to give something to somebody and I go, ah, that would be kind of awkward, that'd be kind of weird, no, God, I won't do that, then it's easy for me to, the next time God prompts me to say no, and the next time he prompts me to say no, and pretty soon I'm just hardening my heart to any prompting of the Holy Spirit in my life. And then when he says, I want you to, to serve in this way, well, I'm kind of busy. I want you to go on this mission trip. Ah, I don't want to do that. I want you to go be a part of this church plant. Well, I certainly couldn't do that. And, and all of a sudden I live my whole life saying no to God, when if I just started with these small yeses, then I would get, graduate to bigger yeses and bigger yeses, and then all of a sudden I'm living a life that's fully surrendered to God. I believe that you're either on the yes God track or the no God track. You're either constantly resisting God's prompting and with excuses or with what you want, or you're saying, God, whatever you want me to do, my answer is yes. Surrendering to little things leads to surrendering to bigger things. That's why it's important to surrender the things when the Spirit of God prompts you right then. Because you want to grieve the Holy Spirit. You don't want to resist God. Are you resisting God? Are you? Another reason why surrender is so important is because surrender always shows up. Uh, God always shows up on the heels of surrender. In other words, the big works of God always show up on the heels of somebody surrendering. You think about it. I mean, all the iconic leaders in the Bible followed this basic pattern. Abraham surrenders Isaac on Mount Moriah, and then after that, he bursts a nation through him, right? Moses surrenders at the burning bush, and then God uses him to, to open up the Red Sea. Joshua surrenders his battle plan and circles around Jericho, even though it doesn't make any sense to him. But God brings down the wall. And you see this over and over and over. Surrender to me, and I'll show up. Surrender to me, and I'll show up. Peter surrenders and throws his net over. Makes no sense to him. And God shows up in a way that could never happen in human terms. And so surrender, all, God always shows up at the heels of surrender. Now, what that means is when God is prompting you to surrender to him, that means that God wants to do something big in your life. And I just wonder how many great things God wants to do through you that he has not done through you because you have not surrendered to him. When Bill and his wife made that contract with God at their kitchen table that night, they went to bed. The next day, in prayer, God gave Bill, this businessman, a vision of a ministry, a way to reach lots of people with the gospel, to reach college kids on college campuses, and to raise them up to be missionaries all around the world. That ministry became known as Campus Crusade for Christ, or CRU today, which now has 20, over 25,000 uh, missionaries in 191 countries all over the world. And what Bill Bright said is this. He said, I believe if there had been no surrender, there would have been no vision. Just think about it. 
what God could do through you. But he's not doing it because you're not surrendered to him. Man, don't waste your life. God's got so so much in mind for you. He's got bigger plans for your life than you have for your life. I mean, Peter would be just fine fishing for fish. He was like, no, 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 my plan's a lot bigger. I want you to fish for men. I want you to be a part of a movement. But it's going to take some surrender on your part, Peter. Are you willing to do that? Let me give you a third reason why surrender is so important. Uh, surrender is important because it's, it battles fear. You see, the greatest enemy to surrender is fear. Peter was afraid. Peter was afraid of the uncertainty. He was afraid of, of um, how am I going to provide for my family? How is this going to work? I can't, I can't make it fit on the ledger. I can't get all my numbers to match up to where this is going to work for us. I'm going to have to step out on faith. I'm going to have to trust you. And he was really afraid of that. Anybody here afraid of trusting God completely? Yeah, all of us. But in his surrender, he chose to not let his fear hold him back. In fact, when Jesus looked at him, remember he said, I'm a sinful man. I've doubted God. I've been holding back. I've I've not been sold out to you like I should. I've been stalled out. And and Jesus looked at him. He said, hey, Peter, what is the first thing he said? Don't be afraid. In fact, what that could be translated is stop being afraid. I love that. Hey, Peter, stop being so afraid, man. From now on, I've got big plans for you. Maybe you're afraid to really trust God, afraid to do what he's prompting you to do, afraid to step out in faith. Hey, listen to the words of Jesus. Stop being afraid. I've got big plans for you. If you want to move from being stalled out to sold out, It's going to come through surrender. This was a defining moment for Peter. In fact, it was so defining. Look at what happens in verse 11. This is how Peter responds. He's emerging now with a new passion, new commitment. In verse 11, he says this. Then, after all this has happened, they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. I want you to circle those words. Left everything. He moved from being sold out, uh, stalled out, to sold out. Man, nothing's going to hold him back. This is the same Peter that would preach at Pentecost. This is the same Peter that would run to the empty tomb. This is the same Peter that would lead the Christian movement. This is the same Peter that, that would surrender his own life as a martyr in a Roman Colosseum and never back away because he was surrendered fully to Jesus. What does surrender look like? How, how do you surrender? I think that's really important. And so I want to close with this. Really what surrender looks like is verse 5. Go back to verse 5. Look at it again. He said, Peter, I, I want you to throw your net out. And he said, if you say so, I will. That's what surrender is. Saying, Lord, if you say so, I will. Lord, do you want me to do this? If you say so, I'll do it. Surrender at times is a moment. It's a crisis event. There are times like when we went to that concert and we really need to be refreshed and that was a moment of surrender for God to refresh us and renew us to finish the work and to to complete what he had for us. And, And so sometimes surrender is a moment. It was certainly a moment for Peter right here. This was a big classic moment, a defining moment for him. Sometimes surrender is a moment. But sometimes surrender is just a daily practice. 
of every morning I get up and I spend time in God's word. And then at the end of the day, I say, Lord, I surrender to you today. If you say so, I will do it. If you prompt me, I will say yes. If you open doors for opportunity, I will quickly walk in them because I don't want to ever say no to you. That's what surrender looks like. Are you surrendering today? Oswald Chambers, who's written, you know, the great devotional study, my utmost for his highest, he says this about surrender. He said, beware of stopping anywhere short of total surrender to God. Most of us only have a vision of what this really means, but have never truly experienced it. Man, when I think about that, I wonder if that's you. And yeah, I kind of have an idea of what surrender is, but I've never really experienced it. For God to do his greatest work in your life, for him to renew you, to empower you, to re-energize you, it starts with surrender. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. Maybe today you realize that you just need to surrender to God. Maybe you've been apathetic, indifferent, calloused. Maybe you've been very fixated on what you want in life, how you're advancing your career, what are the hobbies you want to pursue, what relationships you want to cultivate. You've been very fixated on those things, but pretty indifferent to spiritual things. I want you to feel the hand of Jesus on your shoulder. He's calling you to something greater. Something greater than what you're doing right now. Something greater than what you're experiencing right now. Something more fruitful is still ahead for you. It's still waiting for you. But the only way you get there is through surrender. Maybe you need to confess, God, I've I've been half-hearted. God, I'm not giving you all that I have. God, I've said no to you in the past. I've said, I've gotten in the habit of saying no. God, I want to say yes. Maybe you need, right now, the Holy Spirit's convicting you of that. And you need to confess that to Jesus. Lord, have mercy on me. I've been half-hearted. I've been indifferent. I've said no. Lord, I want to surrender all that I am to you today. And if today you've never given your life to Christ, maybe you've never asked Jesus first and foremost to be the Lord and leader of your life, to surrender your life to him in saving faith, then right where you are, you can pray, Lord Jesus, please come into my life. Please forgive me. I want to surrender all that I am to you. Let me pray for you. Lord, We just confess that so many times, Lord, we have uh, gone our own way, done our own thing, been indifferent or just burned out in our walk with you, God. We've harbored disappointments or doubts. But Lord, I pray that right now, just in our own heart, we would make a contract with you to lay all that we have, all that we hope for, all that we dream about on the table. And not just to think about what it would be to surrender, but truly to surrender to you right now, 
and say, Lord, take it all. Take all that I am. Lord, I want to say yes to you. Lord, help us to live out this week with our yes on the table. Help us live every day this week in total, complete surrender to the prompting of your spirit and the leadership of, of you in our lives. Lord, help us to be a church to fully surrender to you, to give as you want us to give, to go as you want us to go, to, to declare the gospel as you want us to declare it boldly in this time. To have those spiritual conversations this week like you want us to. Lord, show us how to surrender today and to surrender every day to your leadership and your ownership in our life. And use us, God, for great things, for great things that we can't even see. Lord, we surrender to you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.